I was thinking about my journey becoming a, becoming a parent, and you know, every parenting story is, is different, but for me, before um, my firstborn son was, uh, was born, firstborn child uh, was born, it was so abstract. It was this idea that, um, you know, even during the pregnancy, it was like, I got an idea that I'm going to be a dad at some point, but for my wife, it was something that was, she was already bonding with the baby, like learning when the baby was sleeping and, and things like that. And it was such a different experience for moms um, and for dads. And even when they're born, it's like, I, I am almost useless. You know, I'm just kind of there to make sure that she's got everything she needs. I'm just the guy who lifts things, you know, carries things. Do you need anything? That's my, that's my thing. And then the connection with, the, um, with, with my son when he was first born, it was like kind of just... I'm not real interested in you. Like you're the guy, I have some like vague memories of you feeding me a bottle at some point, but I really would rather have mom be here, you know? Um, and it's, it's hard even not to get your feelings hurt, you know? And it's like little baby and you're like, you're insulting me. I'm feeling this at a kind of deep level here. This is uh, hurting, hurting my feelings, how, you're, how little you're interested in me and how much you need your, your mom. But... Um, I was thinking about just this concept of, of parenting in general and, and, uh, and specifically with the, this topic, we're thinking about loving God with your mind and we're talking about what goes on in our minds and how we, how we think about the world, how we think about ourselves, how we think about God and how do we actually love God with our minds as scripture commands us to do. And in this topic, when you're thinking about what goes on in your mind and thinking about the idea of parenting as well, I, I know that when we were heading towards becoming a parent, there was this whole new category of things to worry about that we just never considered as like a married couple. You know, we, we spent five years, um, I was finishing school, and before we ever had, had kids, we were married for five years. And with the introduction of this concept of, of heading towards becoming a parent, there was a whole new category of things to worry about. All these worried thoughts before they're born. What if something goes wrong during the delivery? What if we can't have kids? You know, all these new things to worry about. What if I'm a bad parent? What if, what if I drop them? Like that was de- definitely one of those things like, oh no, like you've got this little fragile um, baby that you're carrying around. And there is... The, the question for us as we're thinking about loving God with our minds is what do you do with all those things to worry about? And parenting is one of these things that tends to be, it can be a source of anxiety for a lot of us. It's like we want things to go well for our kids. What if things are not going well for them? And we have this whole category of worries and fears around parenting. And if you are, don't have many things to worry about, um, all you have to do is, is uh, open your phone and, um, or turn on the TV, and you will have a whole new uh, category of things to worry about that you didn't even know you should be worried about. Right? There's, um, you will find, if you go to social media or if you go and check out what's happening in the world, that people are outraged about something. You'll find something, whatever it is. People are outraged, right? You'll, you'll find, hey, there's a new study that scientists have released about a food that you've been enjoying for many years that's now very dangerous for you, right? You see that one a lot. It's like, oh, no, I can't eat eggs anymore or coffee's bad for me. No, coffee's good for me. Um, all of these things that, that can tend to cause us worry or fear. And the question is, as we're thinking about loving God with our mind, is what do you do with all of that? whether that's fears or worries related to parenting, 
uh, worries or fears about just the world and how things are going or what's next on the horizon, what's the latest thing economically, is inflation going to get worse, all these things. We feel these feelings, we think about them, we tend to dwell on them. It's the kind of stuff we think about before we go to sleep at night. What do you do with that kind of stuff? Where do you put it? What do you do with it? How do we deal with it in a healthy way where it's not causing us pain and, and anxiety and fear and keeping us up late at night? What, what do we do with our worries? We're going to be talking today about a passage of Scripture that I've never taught on but always wanted to. Not always, but the last few years I've wanted to. And it's in Isaiah chapter 36. So if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and turn there or scroll there, whatever the case may be. It'll also be on the screen behind me as well. As I mentioned, this is our series, Love God with All Your Mind. This comes from the words of Christ, where he's quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting this command that was given to the people of Israel about this command is the most important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And we've been focusing on how do you love God with your mind? We've been looking at these passages of Scripture that tell us about uh, that we need to set our minds on things above. That's what we talked about last Sunday. The first week we talked about the idea of taking our thoughts captive and teaching them to obey Christ. But encouraging you to, to remember, uh, to be aware of what you dwell on and to fill your mind with the truth and to even bring your thoughts before God and turn them into prayers and, and consider what you consider and to think about what you allow yourself to dwell on. With that in mind, I'm going to go to an unusual place to talk about this idea of worry, and that's Isaiah 36, as I mentioned. Um, this is we're all about a king named Hezekiah and a really bad day. We're going to get a look at Hezekiah's really uh, bad day. This is during the time in the history of Israel. We, we talked about this last fall in our Elijah and Elisha series called Faith in a Time of Unbelief. And the kingdom was divided. So Israel is into the promised land. They have a king. King David is the, is the mightiest king and the best king out of all the kings that they had had. He was only the second king of Israel at this time. And then there was King Solomon. And during Solomon's reign, there was this just massive empire under King Solomon. And they were powerful and wealthy. And then Solomon's son became the king. And as wise as Solomon was, his son was very foolish and he made some decisions that led to the dividing up of the kingdom between Israel and Judah. So two tribes went and formed a kingdom called Judah, and then the other ten tribes formed a kingdom known as Israel. And these two tribes had very different paths that they went on. Israel was largely led by poor kings, bad kings, in the sense that they did not follow the Lord as King David had followed the Lord. David was held up as kind of this example of what a king should do, and they were always, they were described in terms of were they faithful to the true God or did they follow false gods? And largely when they followed false gods, the nation followed false gods as well. And as the king went, so did the nation. And Israel was judged by God and was eventually carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. And Judah had every now and then a good king. There'd be some bad kings, and there'd be a good king. And Hezekiah, the one we're going to be talking about today, was a good king for the most part. He was someone who restored the worship of the true God. He tore down the pagan altars. Um, in fact, archaeologists have excavated a city called Lachish in ancient Israel. 
And in this city, they found this place that was a site of pagan worship that was, had broken altars in it and had been turned into a toilet under King Hezekiah, that he was restoring the, the true worship of Israel and getting rid of the false idols in the nation. And um, so the, the, the day we're going to join King Hezekiah, he's gotten some very bad news, some very threatening visitors that have arrived at Jerusalem. And every year when we read through the Bible, I, I, we come across this story. And in fact, we read it twice because it's recorded in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and also in the book of Isaiah. And we're going to look at Isaiah's um, account of this. Uh, I love this story. There's a lot going on. It's very dramatic. We're going to read a lot of verses, just FYI today. Um, but I think it'll be very interesting, the story that we're going to dive into together today. And I need to get there myself. So let me get Isaiah chapter 36. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with me, with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So this is a very bad day. We're going to stop right there for a moment. And I want to introduce you to what's going on here, give you some background information. Some of you are really into history. Some of you will just have to bear with me for some of this. Um, Introductions to the characters. King Hezekiah, a good king. He's, you know, great, great, great something grandfather was, was King David. And he's carrying on in the, in, the, uh, in the tradition of King David as following the true God. And this messenger comes with an army to the gates of Jerusalem, and they're out by the water source for Jerusalem, which is very threatening. Because the, what, what the Assyrians would do is they would lay siege to these places and they would build siege ramps and they would just, the armies would surround these towns. And the towns were told in the beginning, these fortified cities have fallen one by one. And now the army has come to Jerusalem itself, the, their capital city. And this army is the Assyrians. And if you've studied world history, you know, high school or even elementary school, you've studied the Assyrians. They reigned for something like a thousand years of, of empire, and they had varying times where they were very powerful, other times where they were not as powerful. Nineveh was the capital city, which is in modern-day Iraq, and of course we know that, we know Nineveh from the story of Jonah. And what had happened before is Assyria had placed Israel 
under, under control to the degree that they would need to pay um, tribute. Syria's like the mob boss in the movie, right? Like, they're, they're like, hey, it's a lovely shop you have here. It'd be a real shame if something bad happened to your shop, you know? You pay us protection money. And Israel had done this, or Judah had done this, for a number of years. But during a time of instability in Assyria, when one king died and the other king was, was taking control, Israel had decided to stop paying the tribute. And they'd aligned themselves with Egypt, even against Isaiah's advice and God's advice. And in this, during this time, now Assyria came and, and said, we're going to send out this massive military campaign and just conquer all the nations. And, and they made their way into Israel, into Jerusalem. And during um, the early days of King Hezekiah's reign, the nation of Israel, these other 10 tribes, the other kingdom, the northern kingdom, had been carried off into captivity. Many of the people had been carried off to Assyria and completely conquered. The, the city of Samaria, the capital city, had been destroyed by the Assyrians. So these are the people. The Assyrians are these threatening, you know, massive, powerful army that is right outside their gate. And this guy, the Rabshakeh, this, this, this title, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Some of you might be able to pronounce it better. But he's, he's the leader. He's like a general. And he's there at the gate with the leaders of the nation of Jerusalem. Not King Hezekiah. He's in the city. But these people are out there. And they're having this conversation. And it's very threatening. He said, if you, I'll make a wager with you. If you could somehow find 2,000 soldiers, we'll give you the horses for them. And then they can ride them and, and fight us. But none of your people are anything against any of our, even the lowest ranking officer. We will destroy you. Words coming every day about the cities falling around. And this is a, this is a dark time. Um, and these people are known, by the way, the way this siege took place, this, this city called Lachish that we talked about, um, and we already mentioned it in, in verse 2. There's major archaeological excavations that have happened there, and they found the siege ramp, most of the siege ramp that was built by the Assyrians to take over this city, Lachish. Fortified city, walled city around it. And so if they're going to take this city down, they lay siege to it, put the army completely surround them, cut off all supplies, all water, all food. They have no way of getting anything. Eventually supplies run low, and the people begin to starve in the city. The siege ramp was built by carrying boulders. They actually went to a big cliff nearby and chiseled these boulders that were about 15-pound boulders and piled them. They would pass them by human chain, archaeologists believe, 160,000 of these 15-pound stones from the quarry a day, and they built this ramp that's almost two football fields long, going up, up to the wall of Lachish so that the army could enter the city. They were protected by these warriors with shields while all these workmen were piling up these boulders and then they built this ramp right into the city and took it captive and, and conquered the city. So this is happening around Jerusalem. Lachish is 25 miles away. That's very close. And when this emissary comes with an army, that's happening. The siege is happening in Lachish and they're saying, you're next. That's sinister. And they were known for their brutality as well. The Assyrians would, um, there's stories of them cutting out the tongues of their enemies so that they won't scream so loudly while they're being skinned alive. Sorry, Mother's Day warm thoughts. Uh, maybe not appropriate for a Mother's Day sermon. 
apologies. This is the situation. This is dark. This is a worrying. This is a dark cloud over. This is a bad day for Hezekiah. This is what's happening right outside the gates. Verse 11 continues the account. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. This is the diplomatic language. We can speak in this language that maybe the people standing there watching this conversation happening can't hear. But then the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Gross. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told them the words of the Rabshakeh. Verse 1 of the next chapter says, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. I always encourage you to, when you're reading passages like this, to engage your imagination as much as possible. And so if we're engaging our imagination, how do you think Hezekiah is feeling in this moment? Pretty bad. Pretty worried. Right? He, he t- tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth. This is the sign of mourning. This is the sign. This is what you do when you get really bad news or something bad happens in your life during this time. He's no doubt very worried. He's fearful. This, this tearing of the clothes and the putting on of sackcloth is this outward expression of this inward distress. Think about the people that heard this. If you, if you give up, the people on the walls that are being shouted to by this guy, if you give up now, we'll make sure you're provided for You're going to have all these good things in your life, and then eventually we're going to carry you off to another place, much like your own land. That that might have sounded pretty good to some people. Hezekiah is probably afraid of the people turning on him. He's afraid of something horrible and violent happening to himself. And, you know, sometimes when we worry about things, we worry about hypothetical, like, this could happen but it probably won't. In fact, researchers did a big study where they had people track the things that kept them up at night and um, something like 91%, they had them journal. What do you worry about? What are you worrying about when you're about to fall asleep? And then later they would go back and say, well, did that ever happen during the course of the study? And 91% of the things that people worried about never happened. 
right? And that's typically the, the true of the things that we worry about, is we worry about all these things, possibilities, this could go wrong, and, and those things cause us pain in the moment when we're worried about them. And then the odds of them never happening are, are very high. It's like these things that we tend to worry about seem like they, they probably won't even happen anyway. So what's the point of worrying about them? In Hezekiah's situation, boy, this is very likely to happen. This is, not, this is not some abstract thing. This is happening to neighboring cities. And for him, this is a moment of crisis. And verse 1 of chapter 37 tells us something very insightful. He tears his clothes. He covered himself with sackcloth. And then where did he go? He went to the house of the Lord. This is very instructive for us when we are and undergoing extreme stress or fear or worry, where should you go? Man, we go, to the, we go to the Lord. We go to the living God who sees what we're experiencing and knows exactly what it is and, and helps us and listens and knows. And we invite him into that. And that's what Hezekiah did. We're going to keep reading. We're going to go verses 2 to 20 um, of chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. We read that part already. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer. For the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush. He has set out to fight against you, and when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden, who, will in, who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva, who made really good clam chowder, but that couldn't save him from um, the Assyrians either. Okay, all right, that was bad, sorry. <laughs> It's Mother's Day, but a dad joke, I don't know, doesn't fit. Okay, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods but the work of men's hands, 
wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. I'm going to stop right there. There's a lot of verses, but we're going to talk about some lessons we can see from, from there. And then we'll talk about how his story resolves in, in just a few moments. Hezekiah gets this bad news from these messengers, and then Sennacherib gets word. You know, he, he's told that instantly that, hey, he's gonna get, I'm going to get a spirit within him, put a spirit within him, a fear. He's going to withdraw from Jerusalem. And he gets word that there's an attack coming, and there's this, the Ethiopian military, the Cushite, is coming to, to battle with him. And so he withdraws so that he can face this battle. But before he withdraws, he sends a nasty letter to Hezekiah. Hey, just so you know, Hezekiah, this does not mean that you're out of trouble. I'm still coming for you. Don't let even your God tell you otherwise. Have any of the other gods of the other nations been able to save them? Your God won't be able to save you either. And he sends this this letter. I I don't know how many of you get bad news in the mail. It seems like, you know, I, I kind of enjoy checking the mail, but every now and then you get something that's bad news, right? A bill you didn't know that you had. Um, and, you know, we get unusual mail at the church sometimes, right? People that feel like God wants them to tell us something and maybe that you can tell they sent it to lots of different churches, some new teaching or something that God's revealed to them. Every now and then, though, we get bad news in the mail as a church, right? And um, we'll, we'll have, I, I, people are genu- genu- uh, generally very kind, right? I love our church. I hear stories from people about uh, kind of nightmare church experiences that pastors have had about people would get hate mail and things like that. And I, I've, on a maybe a small handful of times I've ever experienced that, but sometimes I'll get mail like, you know, a bill we weren't expecting. I remember in the old days at our old building getting these, a, a massive bill that was just completely unexpected. And it was bad news that came via the mail. There was an old preacher that received a letter with no sender or return address on the envelope. And when he opened it, he saw a single piece of paper with only one word, fool. He took it to the stage the next Sunday and he said, I received an unusual letter this week. Never before have I received a letter where the writer signed his name but forgot to write anything else. <laughs> great? This picture of Hezekiah going into the presence of the Lord with this piece of mail and then laying it out. It says he spread it before the Lord, received a letter from the hand of the messengers, read it, and then went to the house of the Lord, put it out before God in a physical action. This is instructive for us in a number of ways. And in fact, I've read this story so many times. I've actually done this. I remember getting, I I believe in the old building, getting a piece of mail that was this big bill that I wasn't expecting as a church and trying to figure out how we were going to pay for it. And, you know, as a, I've been a, the pastor of this church for 13 years, and maybe 10 of those were a lot of financial pressure for the church. And recent years through your generosity, through God's provision, that's changed largely. But for a lot of years, this was a big source of stress. And I remember putting a, a bill out and praying, this is God, this is kind of your problem. Right, God, could you deal with this? Because I, I don't know if I can handle this on my own. I need you to handle this for me. And that might even be a good practice for you. If the, if the things that you're worried about, the things that cause you fear, the things that drag you down, to actually write it out and put it out before God. To say, God, this is something I need you to carry. I can't carry this. 
King David, Hezekiah's ancestor, said in Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Cast your burden on the Lord. Think about the idea of carrying a heavy bag or something or You know, my wife comes home and almost every time she walks through the door, she has tons of bags in like just grocery things that she's picked up and her big bag that is shockingly heavy that she carries to work every day. And then I I try to help her, you know, carry those burdens into the house. We have a split level house. You got to go up or down and there's not a lot of room to put stuff down right there. So I try to meet her at the door if I'm home and she's arriving home to help her carry her burdens as she's coming in the house. And in a spiritual sense, this idea of what Hezekiah is doing here, carrying these burdens and then laying them down and saying, God, I need you to carry this one. We, we need to do that. This has to do with what we believe about God. It has everything to do with what we, what we understand, who we understand God to be. Is God good? Is God powerful? Does he know what you're going through? Does he care about it? If you're going to do something like this, it it is everything to do with your belief in God. And some of you need to do this. This is your action step after we are done today or at some point this week to actually write the things out that you're worried about, to physically put them down and to present them to God. I'm saying, God, I'm casting this burden before you and I need you to sustain me as you promised in your word. I've uh, recommended a book during the course of this series a couple weeks ago, a book by J.P. Moreland. I've got one more recommendation for you. If you've been enjoying this series, um, Love God With Your Mind, this is a book called Winning the War in Your Mind. We've got a picture of it up there. Craig Rochelle's the author of it. He looks a little like Tom Cruise um, in that picture. Um, but in this book, this is a really great book, and I've been reading it with, with Pastor Matt. We meet together uh, weekly for breakfast, and we've been going through this book together. And it's, it's really good and very practical. And in the book, he encourages us to do something that's very similar to what we've been talking about. And he calls it the God box in his chapter on prayer. He says, get a box, and it doesn't have to be fancy or big, a small Amazon box or a shoe box. Now write God on the box. And every time you have a worry, burden, temptation, or runaway crazy thought, Write it down on a slip of paper. You might write, I'm afraid I'm going to get fired. My 17-year-old son worries me sick. I want to get on my phone and go to websites or social media. I know I shouldn't. I can't pay all these bills. What's going to happen with my mother? I want to smoke so bad. I'm never going to change. I'm angry with my spouse constantly. Write them down and put them in your God box. When you do, pray, God, I am trusting you with this. I know you are in control. I know you are bigger than this. This is not a thought I want to think, so I'm giving this to you. Once you pray and put the problem in the box, go on with your life. From that point on, if you decide you want to worry about whatever it was, go to the God box, take it out, and tell God, I don't trust you with this. I'm going to take it back from you. When you read that last sentence, you probably thought, I could never say that to God. But every time we worry or panic, that is what we are saying to God. That is not how we want to live, and we don't need to live that way. Paul told us, the Lord is near. So we need to practice God's presence 
So we will be persistent in prayer. Peter told us that we can cast all our cares on God because he cares for us. Our thoughts seek to betray us, but we know if it is big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. If it's on your mind, it's on God's heart. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16. I haven't yet told you how God responded to Hezekiah and what happened next. The verses following uh, the verses where we stopped give this response through the hand of Isaiah from God to Hezekiah. And it starts with these this idea, because you have prayed to me, and then there's God's response. Because Hezekiah prayed to God, God is going to deliver him. And it starts with this kind of poetic reply from God. And we're going to skip to the kind of punchline, verse 33 through 38 of Isaiah 37. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Azar Hadon, his son, reigned in his place. Hezekiah went to the house of his god. This is a note from my ESV study Bible. It said, Hezekiah went to the house of his god and was saved. Sennacherib went to the house of his god and was assassinated. More warm Mother's Day thoughts for you, sorry. Um, by the way, the archaeological evidence for Sennacherib and, and the story, the, the truthfulness of the story, the fact that we can rely upon the truth of Scripture is, is overwhelming. Hezekiah shows up in uh, ancient finds that have been found. There's a, something called Sennacherib's prism, which is a little clay um, a thing that's in the British Museum that they've discovered. There's actually three copies of it. There's one in, at the University of Chicago, uh, one at the British Museum, and one at one other place. And it's about 15 inches tall by 6 inches, and it's this um, multi-sided prism that has an account of Sennacherib's campaign into the nation of Israel in, 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 against Judah. It talks about him taking down the city Lachish that's mentioned in this passage. And then rather than admitting defeat at Jerusalem, he says, this is the way he put it, I trapped Hezekiah the Judahite in Jerusalem like a caged bird. In other words, I did not take Jerusalem, right? That's a, recorded for us uh, with archaeological evidence and, again, further evidence that the Bible is trustworthy. Archaeology continues to confirm these biblical accounts for us. What I really want you to focus on, though, is that Hezekiah is such a great illustration of what we should do when we face trouble. Where do you go? Where do you take those things? What do you do with your worries about your kids, about the world, about whatever the case may be? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. And God knows what you need. Let's bring our worries, let's bring our fears into his presence. Martin Luther says, pray and let God worry. Let him carry your burdens. I was listening to a, a speaker, I think it was Kevin Lehman, who's written a bunch of books on parenting, and he came to Spokane a number of years ago. I think this was before I became a parent. And I was listening to him talk about the difference between, he said, there's two kinds of parents on the playground. It was either the playground or people who were ice skating. I'm trying to remember. I think it was the playground. Kids who fell down, um, when, when the parents, the two different groups of parents saw their kids fall down, there was two different reactions. One was like, oh no, are you okay? And then the other one he called kaboomy parents. And the way he described this was, that's the parents that when the kid fall, falls down and the kid looks to their parents, they say, oh, kaboomy, you're okay. Get back up, you're fine. Like that. Or there's the parents who are like, oh no, are you okay? And then he just, this was instructive for me as a parent because he said, when, the, when your kid falls, they don't know if they're okay, right? So they look to you, they're like, am I okay? And if they see you going, ah, like that, they go, I'm not okay, <laughs> right? And then the reaction is there and they, 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 they mimic you, right? They're like, oh, I'm not okay. And they're hurt and all of a sudden they're crying. It's, but if you're a kaboomy parent, and you go, kaboomy, you're okay. I don't think I've ever said the word kaboomy except for right now. <laughs> but if it's that whole, I think you're okay, buddy, you know, get back up or whatever, right? This is an illustration. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's another family therapist named Edwin Friedman who was a Jewish rabbi and a family therapist. And he coined this phrase about the idea of being a non-anxious presence. And I'm bringing this up because I want you to think about Hezekiah's impact on the nation around him. These people who are terrified. And they see what Hezekiah does when he's feeling all those same emotions. And he goes to the Lord for help. And he receives the help that only God can offer. And what an impact that must have made on the people watching. And... You, the people around you, need you to be a non-anxious presence. Edwin Friedman talked about this idea that in a, in a world of chaos or in a chaotic situation where everyone's running, running around dealing with a crisis like their hair's on fire, the natural response is to get caught up in it, right? You just mimic that. You're like the kid who sees the parent and you go, ah, I'm not okay, he says, rather what we need are people to be non-anxious, a non-anxious presence in these situations where they're able to be present in the environment, but when people look to them, they have some sort of deep resource of calm and peace. And that enables them to disrupt this natural cycle of being in crisis and being terrified and being fearful. And I think the world and your families in your workplaces, need followers of Christ to be non, a non-anxious presence in those different environments. We're, we're told what to do with our fear, what to do with our worry. We bring it to God. 
And Scripture says the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. If we really understand this and really believe this, this is transformative for our lives, for our families, for all the different ways that we interact with people. We can have the peace of God guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus because we have the God of peace in our lives. Because he's a part of our life, we can have that kind of peace that passes all understanding. And if he's not a part of your life, you're invited to make him a part of your life this morning. We're going to pray. Would you bow with me, Lord? We thank you for your word and your, this account of King Hezekiah, Lord. And it's so instructive for us of how to deal with our worry, how to deal with our fear. And Lord, first of all, I want to pray for anyone who has yet to put their faith in you as their Savior. I pray that you would bring them into your family even right now. Lord, invite them into your family. You, you are there with open arms on the cross, welcoming the world to come to you. And you are Prince of Peace. Invite the world to find peace with God that will then enable us to have peace in any other circumstance we might face. And so, Lord, I pray uh, for anyone who has yet to put their faith in you, Lord, that right now you'd help them to say yes to you. You'd help them to turn from their sins, receive you as their Savior, and begin a new life with you. And Lord, for all of us who are your followers, we, we struggle with worry. I think everyone struggles with worry to one degree or another about real things or imagined things. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to do what we've been talking about today, to lay them in front of you and to say, you need to carry these. They're too heavy for me. Help us to trust you. And then Lord, may that teaching of, from Philippians 4 that the peace of God guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Help us every time we worry to turn that into a prayer and leave it in your hands so that we might be those kind of people that the world looks to in a chaotic time and sees people who have a deep and abiding sense of peace because of our connection with you and can be a resource for people who need us, who need help, who need hope, who need the salvation that only you offer. Lord, may we live this out. May this be our reality. We praise you. We thank you for this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.